the person with the problem has to make that call. I called the treatment center and the man who answered the phone said, have you been drinking? I knew I couldn't lie anymore. And that night, I knew that it was time to just tell the truth. I ended up in that treatment center three weeks later. We're here to empower high income earners to gain back control of your time through financial independence and stop trading your time for money and start letting your money work harder for you. And hey, if you want to meet other high income earners on their FIRE journey, join our High Income Earners FIRE Facebook group. Every month we'll have guest speakers and we'll share about what our team is currently working on and allow you to share what you are working on with other high income earners. High Income Earners FIRE podcast is brought to you today by Bonavest Capital, where we partner with investors to build up passive income through real estate syndications and start living a lifestyle by design. As well as Say Yes Stock Option Investing, where we show high income earners how to generate consistent cash flow with your phone and accelerate your journey to financial freedom. So hello everyone, welcome back to the High Income Earner Fire Podcast. So today I have a very special guest and this is our second episode that we're filming in person. And thanks Judy for letting us film at your place. It's a very nice backdrop compared to our Zoom usual video. And the reason why I invited Judy is because first she, is financially freedom, <laughs> hit her financial freedom age 53. But more important, she also pledged a lot of her assets into charitable works that she holds dearly because she went through it herself and she has a lot of stories to share. And also on top of that, we don't have a lot of female guests on the show. And I really inspired by Judy's story. I think her story will inspire a lot of people. So without further ado, I wanna welcome Judy. Hi, Cody. Thank you very much for having me today. Yeah. So Judy is already retired, but can you go back a little bit and tell us how you started? Because Judy has a very interesting background. She never took any business course, but she started her first business at 23 years old. So how did that happen? I grew up in an industry where my parents owned a company in the beauty supply industry. And my mother worked with my father for 22 years. So my role model was a woman who was a strong woman in business. And anyway, at the age of 22, I had graduated. I was teaching high school on a part-time basis, trying to figure out what to do with my life. Nice. Started skydiving when I was... Instructor? Uh, no, not an instructor, but I okay. have 117 parachute jumps, which I made when I was very young. And frankly, the uh, only so time... So like, uh, you like to chase those high. Exactly, exactly. Right. I have a little bit of an adrenaline junkie uh, yeah. in me. But at the age of 22, I took a job with an American hair care company that was Dallas-based. And the reason I took that job was because they promised to make me their exclusive Canadian distributor mm -hmm. after six months of working in the States. And as it turned out, it was 11 and a half months later, but I did become their exclusive Canadian distributor. And at the age of 23, I started my business with that brand and really never looked back. Took on numerous other brands and over the course of my career, I represented anywhere from 35 to 40 American companies exclusively in Canada, where I was responsible for warehousing the product, carrying the receivables, hiring the sales force, and doing all the marketing. And my company grew pretty rapidly from the start, but it was very different being a woman in business in those days. That was the early 70s. I remember you said it, and one of the bio you sent me, you said woman in business like standing on the 10 feet pole is that a 10 foot hole 10 foot hole yeah. hole okay hole, yeah <laughs> uh, why do you say that much more so in those days than today my customers were 95 percent men 
And but it's a beauty product. It's it doesn't matter. The men, okay. the men that ran those companies, the men that I called on that were my customers, my competitors were men. And the women that held jobs in those days were predominantly hair color technicians, salespeople on the road, but they weren't in executive positions. So I fully felt that business was a sport and it was a man's game or sport in those days. And I was very athletic, so I understood sports. Yeah. And I figured if I wanted to play in that arena, it was their bat, their bases, their ball. I had to learn how to play the game. Mm -hmm. And so I would invariably feel when I met someone that I was in a 10-foot hole and I had three to five seconds to, yourself. to just get level, to get on yeah. the level playing and field. how do you do that? Everything from a handshake, eye contact. I had a very firm handshake, so invariably somebody shaking my hand would make a comment about how firm my handshake was, look me in the eye, yeah. and I was all business. I dressed for business, and I was all business in those days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely a lot of things changed now. Yeah, very much but, so. Uh, I wish I met you back then to just see and admire <laughs> how you operate. Uh, and so you took on that job at 23, but you're kind of entrepreneur already, having the promise that you will take over the whole exclusive offering right. at age 23. And then how did it go on from there? So my customers in the Canadian market at that time were beauty supply wholesalers. And interestingly enough, my parents' original company was a customer of mine for 30 years. Oh, really? Okay. So the salesmen that watched me grow up were my... They were a customer and... Was it a help or do you think it's not a help? I think they <laughs> weren't sure whether I was going to take this business seriously. Yeah. And what they found out very shortly thereafter was that I was incredibly serious, very driven, very passionate and became quite successful early on. Yeah. And what was driving you? Because your parents has a business, for lack of better words, you don't have to do much. Mm -hmm and write it throughout your life. So mm -hmm. what was driving you and why were you so different in that case? Because while everyone's enjoying the nightclubs life, early 20s, dating and all that, why yeah. were you so driven? I think it's a common characteristic of entrepreneurs. I mention often that an image that I had explained to me early on in my career was that we are always searching for the horizon. We're going for the horizon and of course, we never achieve a goal we, because the horizon continues moving. Yeah, we can never going. get there. Yeah. I was very driven by fear of failure. The agreement that I signed with this American company was a three-year contract. Mm -hmm. And in the first year, I had to purchase $120,000 US in that very short. There were only six bear care products. And at that time, if I had $1,000 in the bank, I was comfortable. I didn't know any better. I was independent from the time I was 15 or 16. I yeah. always had part-time jobs. I worked through university. Mm -hmm. Although I didn't have to, I did. And mm -hmm. I think that entrepreneurial spirit came from my parents, mm -hmm. but it's something that's very inbred. And when I think about that initial opening order that I had to place, it was thirty or $40,000 US. And was it scary? It was feeling? terrifying for me. And that's like, what? how long ago was that? I was 23. It was 1973. So that's <clears throat> a different $30,000 or $120,000 today. Yeah. That might mean it's more of a half, half a million, million yeah, today. Yeah, it was an enormous number. And again, I had a huge fear of failure. And most entrepreneurs won't admit to that. Yeah. That drives them. And now you have to, you sell, have to sell it. I have to pay. Well, the good news is I figured this out quite early. I had 90 days to pay my bills. And because what I had, you couldn't buy from anyone else in Canada. 
that once I created a business for a customer of mine, whether it was Vancouver or Newfoundland, 30 days after you purchase that product, if you hadn't paid your receivable on 31 days, I wouldn't ship you. So I learned that lesson very early that a sale is not a sale until you get paid. Yeah. So my receivables were always current. And as I said, I had 90 days to pay the Dallas-based company for my product. But an expression I heard years ago about entrepreneurs is that we are egomaniacs with an insecurity complex, which is a very, I think, accurate way to describe me. Again, I would say most entrepreneurs may not admit to that, but it's a pretty common thread. Yes, it's, we're definitely a special breed. Mm -hmm. We're a special breed. We push everything down. We try to handle everything. Right. We don't know what's going really going through down here, but up here we're smiling, right? So how did that like have a success early on, able to buy a product for half a million, push it all out in 120 days or 90 days? How did that success impact you? Did you start expanding from there because you saw a confidence that mm -hmm. you could do it? Mm-hmm. And then you went up from there, is that? For the first seven years I was in business, my business was with beauty supply wholesalers across Canada, who in turn sold my products to salons. So if you went to get a haircut, they might put a cape around you to keep you dry. They might use a pair of scissors I imported, a shampoo I imported. So many of the products used or retailed through salons came from me. But you as a consumer would not know Who that I was the initial yeah. master distributor and importer mm -hmm. of those items. Mm -hmm. At the end of my seventh year, I traveled to American conferences looking for new products all the time. And at the end of my seventh year, I was found that I had numerous items that couldn't bear all the markups going through me to a wholesaler, yeah. to a salon, to a consumer. And so I started a second division selling to people like Shoppers Drug Mart, Walmart, Loblaws, people like that across Canada. And that division over the course of my business career became 10 times the size of the first division. So basically at first you were selling to the wholesaler, you rely on the volume, mm -hmm. right? A small profit margin, but you found that, hey, a lot of end user have to go through all of that. So why not you start a second division to sell directly to them? They get a better price, you get a better profit margin mm -hmm. as well, right? Mm -hmm. That's why you started the second division. Mm -hmm. And you say that business was 10 times bigger? The size, the size of the first division. How big of a team did you have? Like so I had a warehouse always north of the city, at the north end of the city. I was in uh, 21,000 square feet uh, for about 17 years in Markham at wow. Warden and Steels. Wow. I employed 25 people internally. That was office staff and warehouse staff. I didn't do any manufacturing or filling in my warehouse at that time, but I would kit products. So I would buy different components, boxes, caps, lids, and raw materials have those products manufactured for me or contract manufactured and we would put them together in my warehouse. I had a national sales force in my retail division of 35 to 40 people depending on the year mm -hmm. and those were commissioned people and in my professional salon division I had five people on the road covering Canada. Just like uh, salespeople, salespeople, making sure your customers are happy. Exactly, right? exactly. And there was a lot of education in the professional salon division. So, we worked a lot of conventions. Uh, hairdressers and stylists don't work on Sunday and Monday. So my conventions were, I would arrive in a city on a Saturday, set up my booth, do my sales meetings, and the convention would be Sunday, Monday. And then Tuesday for me would feel like a Saturday. Yeah. And I would travel on to the next city. And it wasn't unusual for me to fly from Toronto to Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, Toronto, do all of those cities in maybe 10 days, 11 days. And, and that's around early, kind of your late 20s, early, early 30s. 30s. Yes. That's yes. around my age. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's when you have to drive energy to do Exactly. That. Exactly. 
And so is it fair to say your first division, maybe about 20 people, second division, 100 people under you? No, no. You t- well, from the standpoint of salespeople, I had 35 salespeople wow. in the retail division and I employed 25. So my staff was 25 plus five people in sales and my retail sales force was a commission sales force. So I didn't employ those people. They were on straight commission. So if they wrote a lot of business, they earned a lot of money if they didn't write a lot of business. And so unlike some owners, the bigger the commission checks I signed, the happier I was because if they were making money, I was making money. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Like for people who doesn't know, like a men people and Office people and salespeople are totally different mm-hmm. beasts, right? So if you want to hire salespeople, you got to treat them accordingly. The more they make, the more you make. Kind exactly. Of thing. exactly. But men people is totally different. So you got to know how to tell the difference. Exactly. So where do you learn all this? How big was your parents' company compared to yours? So my sales were about seven times what my father's company was doing. And do you think, Looking, growing up in that environment help you? Absolutely. Our dinner table conversation was not, what did you study in school today? It was, which receivable was in their ears or what salon were they building? It was very much business oriented in my house growing up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That that definitely helps. Not that it's a must, but Mm -hmm. growing up in that kind of environment definitely drive you who you were back then. Mm -hmm. I had sales jobs at 12. I was selling... uh, shirts, t-shirts. I had a paper route when I was 11. I was working at a stable because I wanted to be around horses when I was 12. So I always seemed to have jobs. And when my friends were traveling through Europe, I was working. And that's just who I was. Mm-hmm. You were comfortable in that. Totally, totally. And would you say you're a rare breed among your friends, oh, female, uh, yes. driven entrepreneurs who manage so many people. I would say that given where I grew up in Toronto and the school system I went through, I was a rarity for sure. Yeah. Wow. And I know early on success, you run first division, very successful, had the second division. And I remember on your bar, you told me that you actually, when you try to expand, you pick up a U.S. company that was basically losing $250,000 per month. So tell us more about that story. So when I was 36, there was a company based in New York that I had represented for 15 years. I was their exclusive Canadian distributor. They manufactured the premier brand of hair removal wax used in salons Mm -hmm. really around the world. And I acquired that company first. And the second company I was a competitor of. And so I knew the brand very, very well. And we wanted a division of the second company. And because the parent company was in financial trouble, we had to acquire the parent company. Why were they in financial trouble? If they're uh, your Very severe mismanagement by the prior owner, very severe mismanagement. And so to acquire the division, we had to buy the parent company. And They owed about $10 million U.S., a few million to a couple of banks, about a million and a half dollars to the customers, which was really rare. They owed that in co-op monies that weren't paid, returns that weren't credited. That was the parent company. And the division... you have to take over all that. We had to take over all of that. So how did that work? I know it's probably you can talk about this because it already happened, right? Yeah. So if they owe $10 million, mm-hmm. how much do you have to pay? So we had to hire, first of all, we filed a Chapter 11 in the Brooklyn Bankruptcy Court. Yeah. We had a bankruptcy attorney. And so my Canadian company was 
we had a number of U.S. companies in between my Canadian company and the company that was in trouble so that my Canadian company was safe. And what we had to do was we had to make a deal with the creditors. We made a deal with the banks to reduce what we owed them by millions. The creditors took 10 cents on the dollar. And the reason that they accepted only 10 cents on the dollar, that's not the customers, but the creditors, people like freight companies, packaging companies, raw material companies. The reason that they took that 10 cents on the dollar was because they got to retain a customer, that we were going to maintain that division and remain a customer to those people. So if they hadn't voted to agree to that 10 cents on the dollar, they would have lost a customer and lost everything. So here they got 10 cents on the dollar and the money they were owed, plus they continued to have a customer on an ongoing basis. With the customers, people like Rite Aid, Revco, Eckert Drugs, Long Drugs, Thrifty Drugs, every drug chain in America was owed money by the parent company. Mm -hmm. And so the plan we came up with was every six months for two years, that drug chain could buy from us free goods, make their margin and make their profit and get back 100 cents on the dollar that they were owed. So if we owed Walgreens, which we did, by $240,000, they continued to do business with us, which we needed, of course. And they then, every six months, got to shop for products that they carried where they would make their margin and they would get back 100 cents on the dollar over a two-year period. So we didn't lose any customers, which was truly remarkable. brilliant, because you don't have to pay out of your pocket. Yeah. But you let them make money, also mm-hmm. pay for your own debt, exactly. and you still keep the customer happy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Brilliant. Yeah, it was a great plan. That was brilliant. Yeah, and we were out of Chapter 11 in 15 months, which was unheard of in the Brooklyn yeah. Bankruptcy Court, apparently. it was. You save a lot it, of yeah, people. Yeah, we did. And we saved the company. And about a year later, so we were profitable within four or five months. And what I had to do was call on all these retailers and say, my name is Judy Wells. I'm a woman, I'm Canadian, so I had like three strikes against me. And yes, I know we owe you $200,000, but if you remain a customer and your uh, receivable is current, we will get you 100 cents on the dollar. And it was a very, very difficult year and a half for me, very difficult. And I'm very proud of what we were able to do. And is that, we're going to take a small pivot point here. Is that why you have early on success and have to deal with all these things at age 36 Deal of almost bankrupt company taking over, forced to take over their parent company and try to turn it around, come up with an innovative deal that never anyone come up with, make it work. Does that have anything to do with kind of you're trying to find another way? You keep pushing these pressure down as an entrepreneur and start finding other substance to help you out? Is that where the where it all started? Or you're talking about my drinking? Well, I don't know <laughs> if it's drinking or something else, but is that like, when do you start this drinking thing? Where's yeah. How they all started? Yeah. Well, I would say that in university, I was never a social drinker. I always drank a lot, but during this period of time, I was married. My ex-husband and I are dear friends today. He was my greatest cheerleader through this period. And... I drank a lot and starting in university already. Yeah, but it didn't become party drinker. You're a party uh, somewhat, but it didn't become problematic. I would say until my mid to late thirties, and the pressure and stress of these two U.S. companies. So I was pretty much on the road in the states for two years, 
And my Canadian company was being run by an executive that I had at the time, mm -hmm. although I had set parameters so nobody could blow up the business in Canada. Yeah. I'm a bit of a micromanager. You're going to have yeah. to, right? When you're first yeah. gen, you started your baby, right? Exactly, exactly. But it uh, certainly, as an entrepreneur with certain major levels of stress, Drinking helped me just turn my head off. It just helped me turn, my brain was going all the time. And it was really a relief and to have a few drinks and just sort of take a deep breath and try to chill. Wow. So do you mind if I ask like, what stage you kind of got married and what's the reason why you started drinking or being successful in business? Any part of the reason for you know, separate ways and all that, do you think is because you're very strong mm -hmm. and maybe sometimes perceive as overpowering mm -hmm. woman? Like, and then that's kind of lead to that. Would you say any of those things could be a reason or a reason for for like for the separation oh, and all that? I would say, in a very loving way, we had just come to the end of our path together, mm -hmm. and again, we're my ex is remarried. We're very dear friends today, and. I'll leave it at that. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> so you were heavy drinker, but you were still running two yeah. companies. Mm -hmm. You were holding it down. Three companies. Three companies. Two in the U.S., one yeah, in Canada. Canada, yeah. So what was it a problem? Why do you keep drinking? Mm -hmm. uh, when did it become a problem? I would say at the age of 40, my marriage had ended. The businesses, I was now back in the Canadian company. I had sold off the U.S. company successfully, and my drinking had escalated. And what I've come to learn is that alcoholism is a disease, it's a family disease, and you have, or one has, I had, an obsession and compulsion to drink that overrode everything. And I would say that the stress exacerbated that, but that I was born an alcoholic waiting to happen. And mm -hmm. at the age of 41, I got sober, and I've been sober since then. So what was that turning point? How do you go from, how much were you drinking at most? Oh. Like, can you put us in context here? <laughs> so typical for me, I could have two martinis before dinner, a bottle of wine with dinner, and drinks after dinner. At the end of my drinking career, I was drinking alone. If I passed out or blacked out, I was a very high-functioning blackout drinker, Cody. What does that mean? It means that I could get on a plane, get off the plane, get my luggage, get into a cab, go to a hotel, check into the hotel, and come out of the blackout unpacking in my hotel, which happened to me at a conference in Las Vegas. I had no recollection of anything that happened to me from the time I got on the flight in Chicago on my way to Las Vegas. From the time I got on the plane to the time I was unpacking in my hotel suite, absolutely no recollection of anything that happened. And that is termed a blackout. And I had dozens and dozens of blackouts during my drinking career. So when I quit drinking, or by the time I was ready to quit drinking, if I passed out and left two or three ounces of straight Russian vodka in a glass beside my bed, if I woke up at six in the morning or eight in the morning, it occurred to me that the right thing to do was to drink that vodka go to my freezer, open the freezer door, and have the bottle of vodka, and be drinking first thing in the morning. And I never went anywhere without alcohol. I always had a bottle of vodka in my purse. At the time, I was a very heavy smoker. I had cigarettes and vodka and wouldn't rely on anyone for either of those two things. And my life had become very small, and I was not only a daily drinker, 
but there were days that I was drunk twice in one day where I could drink in the morning, recognize that I was way too messed up to go to work. And my office was in Markham. So sometimes I would get within two or three blocks of the office. I lived at St. Clair and Young at the time. So yeah. I had a up the Don Valley Parkway inebriated. I would be two or three blocks from the office, look in the rearview mirror, recognize that I was way too messed up to go to work. And it would occur to me the right thing to do was to go to the liquor store on Highway 7, go north on Kennedy Road somewhere. I had a huge four-door Mercedes at the time. Park the car, lock the doors, put the seat back, pass out, and I might be there sleeping for two or three hours, come to, drive back downtown and start drinking again. So my life was very small. I wasn't drinking with anyone. I drank alone. I drank daily and I couldn't stop. So I tried to change what I drank. I tried scotch. I tried white wine spritzers. Nothing worked. I always ended up back to vodka. Interestingly enough, I did a little cocaine in my time. I never did very much of it because I didn't really like that feeling. It was always cut with something. And the good news is I didn't like it because yeah. I could have afforded to do a lot of it. Yeah, and lots you're wealthy of, enough to do yeah, any damage yes, to your body. That's exactly you right. And lots of high net worth people can afford to do a lot of that. Mm -hmm. My drug of choice was Russian vodka. Mm -hmm. And I woke up one day and I had a 1939 Jaguar kit car at the time that was mounted on a 1974 Mustang chassis. Mm -hmm. So it was a very light car on a big engine. And I drove that drunk to the cottage, which is 50 miles north of Toronto, and got up the next morning at my parents' cottage, and I had a Mickey of vodka, which I drank warm at 8.30 yeah. that morning, and was newly drunk. At, by 9 o'clock in the morning, I was drunk, and my sisters, their children, and my parents were there, and I had driven on the very road that my brother was killed on, and I was out of control. And drove back to the city at 10 o'clock in the morning, quite drunk, and that week, my older sister called me to her house and she said, I'm not going to lose another sibling to alcohol. You need help. And she had called a couple of treatment centers and you have to call yourself. You, the person with the problem has to make that call. And I went So home. they know, your family knows. My family knew very well that I had a problem. But did they try to... They didn't up until that point. I think there often there is sort of denial in the family or I kept it pretty well hidden for the most part, but... That morning, it was evident I was not hungover. I was newly drunk. And I went home that night. I had a few drinks, and I called the treatment center. And the man who answered the phone said, have you been drinking? And I had that moment of clarity where I knew I couldn't lie anymore. I used to lie to my GP about how much I drank. I lied to everyone about how much I drank. And that night, I knew that it was time to just tell the truth. And I did. And I ended up in that treatment center three weeks later. And I've been sober ever since. Do you mind, like, because I've never been in a treatment center. What does it entail in the treatment center? What do they do in there? <laughs> well, You're you, laughing, I'm laughing. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the counselors were all in recovery, which is a big deal because they know where you've been. They okay, know where you are. They overcome have lived it. experience and they've okay. overcome it. That's critically important to my story yep. and to the treatment center I was in. We don't trust anyone who has never exactly. been there or done that. We're exactly. Like, Yes, right. and the counselor that I had had read my bio and knew that I was successful, and her job was to find out how serious I was about getting sober. Yeah, how serious? And <laughs> was I just taking up a seat, or was I serious? Yeah. And I... Were you serious? I was dead serious. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to hurt anyone else. I'm very fortunate I didn't hurt anyone drinking and driving. Yeah. I don't know if that's a gift or that's a curse for yeah. you. Being able to function at blackout 
and not do anything bad to yourself or anyone mm -hmm. else. I don't know if that's a gift or... I'm very fortunate. I sometimes think my brother's number was up and mine wasn't. Very fortunate that I didn't hurt anyone drinking and driving. And But they take their sobriety very seriously. They did there and... You do a lot of work on your child, on yourself, on understanding what the underlying problem is, problem is What's the and why was I drinking, why did I start drinking, and how serious I am about staying sober. And it's a one day at a time thing. Like All I know is I'm going to sleep tonight without alcohol. I have no idea what I'll do tomorrow, so I don't have to think about the rest of my life. I never had to think about that. It's one day at a time. Is it at their facilities? Or Sorry? Was it at their facilities? Mm -hmm. At their accommodation? Right. You stay there so they can monitor you? Sure. Is that how it yes, goes? Yes, yes. And how yeah. long was that? Treatment? I was there 28 days. 28 days. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Was it tough in the beginning? Withdraw was there any withdrawal? Uh, with me, it's it different down? for everyone. No, I had no major withdrawal. And the obsession and compulsion to drink was virtually lifted within 48 hours. It's never come back. So I'm one of the few that I have no desire to have a drink. I don't ever want to go back to that life. I don't ever want to have that. It's like a switch. It was. It's like a switch. You were on, yeah. fully on, and yeah. you were fully off. Yeah. Well, I believe, and you hear this phrase, I hit the bottom that I needed to hit for me, given where I was, my values, my standards. It would have taken me years to blow up my company. It was a mature organization. It was 18 years old at the time. And I just did not want to live that way any longer. And I wanted to change and I wanted help. And as an independent, willful individual, like people think, well, don't you have willpower and can't you stop drinking? Nothing to do with willpower. I have all the willpower. Yeah, like you Huge it. reserves of willpower. But I hit the bottom that I needed to hit and I never want to go back there. I'm sufficiently terrified of the thought of going back to alcohol. Mm -hmm. And it's a progressive disease. So if I started to drink tomorrow, I'm not going back to where I was at 18. I'm going back to where I was at 41. Very rapidly, my drinking would escalate to where I was at the end of my drinking career. Mm -hmm. Drinking career. That's definitely the first time I heard their story. Not the first time, but the first time I heard the full story. Last thing I had a quick intro of that. So. Now that you've been sober for 30 years, and I know that you start because of all your history, what you've gone through, how you overcome, you said you want to give back in a way that means a lot, hold dearly to you. Is yeah. that how you start helping on Mount Sinai? Yes. Or how did that happen? So my doctor, my GP, is affiliated or was, he's now retired, but was affiliated with Mount Sinai. And any specialist I ever had to see was at the hospital. So I was in and out of the hospital frequently. Mm -hmm. And one day I was walking by the donor wall and I thought it's time for me to give something that's more meaningful and I want to give it to Mount Sinai. And because I, they were helping you throughout. Because they had always helped me and the doctors that I had past tense and have today mm -hmm. are at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And so the first money that I committed to give, they asked where I wanted that money to go and I really hadn't thought through. So you just I, want to give back but you I don't know where. You I didn't know, know where. So I asked yeah. them where do you need the money and they were hoping their labor and delivery department was in the dark ages, and they were hoping to build six birthing rooms. And so my contribution, my initial contribution, was to build one of those birthing rooms. Mm -hmm. And seven months later, I went back, 
and I said I'd like to do all six of them. And at, as a result of me stepping forward, the other five were committed. Mm -hmm. And spearheading. Yeah. Everyone's waiting on you. Exactly. On that first exactly. The first one. And anyway, I made a very, very substantial commitment that day. And they said, if you make a donation of a certain amount, we will name the birthing center after you. So for about 15 years, it was called the Judy Walls Family Birthing Center, which I'm very proud of. Mm -hmm. And every year, 4,500 to 5,000 babies were born in that birthing center. Mm -hmm. And Mount Sinai is known as the place to go if you're a high risk, mm -hmm. have a high risk pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And they've now torn down that birthing center. They built a much bigger one. There are 19 birthing rooms, and the first mm -hmm. six are in my name. So I'm still very proud of that. Wow. That's just amazing. Mm -hmm. That's Thank just you. amazing. You achieve a lot when you're 23, sold a company, and had this whole alcoholism throughout the way. At age 41, you're like, I need to stop doing this. And then what happened after that? Did you like just, you kind of sold your company? The last one at age 53, that's where you call yourself financial free, right? That's why we stay true to our audience mm -hmm. here, right? So once you sold that, sold all those uh, company and all that, do you still hold any of those? Or no. You, like, no, I'm totally so out. So what did you do? You don't have to tell me the amount. Mm -hmm. I know it was a big amount when you sell mm -hmm. the company. I can go through the evidence <laughs> that's going through my brain. I know how to reverse it. Right. What do you do besides that? pledging your donation to Mount Sinai yeah. and of course play golf, staying healthy now, never touch alcohol. What do you do with other money? And maybe someone's in similar stages. You mm -hmm. may be a female, might be a male, but right. what did you do that you learned throughout that? Like after 53, you mm -hmm. all this money accumulated. How do you allocate those? Maybe you can share some lights for us. So one thing I'm very proud of is I've been able to be very generous with my family. So that's where what do you mean started. by that? generous in terms of your time, in terms of your money, your attention. What, what you I would say over the years, I've been able financially to be very supportive to my family. I have no children that I know of. I always jokingly <laughs> say that. So I have three nephews and two sisters, and we're pretty close. Mm -hmm. And so that's one avenue that I've been able to. And it's interesting with the hospital as well as my family. It does more for me to give. I always say this, it does more for me than for them. That if I weren't sober, I couldn't do any of this. So mm -hmm. I start with gratitude. Mm -hmm. Like how remarkable is it that I lived through those last years of mm -hmm. horrific drinking, that I didn't hurt myself. I did hurt myself, but I physically wasn't harmed. Mm -hmm. And that I'm able to give back as a result of being sober. It's where everything starts, that I'm alive today because I'm sober. Mm -hmm. And so what else have I done? I've championed two programs at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. The one that I would talk about today, I'm working on is a chair. It's the first in the world, mm -hmm. certainly the first in Canada, a chair in the emergency department in addictions and mental health. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that I'll share, and very often you have what's called a concurrent disorder. So I am an alcoholic, I'm an addict, an alcoholic with bipolar disorder. So That's a very complex combination. combination. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder five years after I quit drinking. And what you would ordinarily hear is that until you take the substance away, until so I was self-medicating for years. And what I thought, I'm a Libra. So Libras yeah, are the yeah, scale, the balance. Yeah. And so my system would be either very racy, very almost high, 
with nothing. And, or I would be sort of semi-depressed and in a slow mood and not really feeling myself. And then I would flip again back and forth. And all the years that I drank, I cut off the highs and lows of that bipolar disorder. So, yeah. So the phrase self-medicating is what you would say I was doing. And five years into my sobriety, I had some had an opportunity during a physical with a, my GP, the same GP that I used to lie to when I drank. <laughs> he would ask me how much I drank. I would say, oh, three or four drinks a day, but I wouldn't tell him each drink was six or eight ounces. <laughs> so he said to me at the end of a physical, how are you feeling? And now I'm five years sober. And I said, well, half the time I have to explain to people, I can tell by their body language, that they think I'm either on speed or cocaine, that I'm very racy and I talk really fast. And mm-hmm. so either I have to explain to them, I this is just me, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. And the other half the time, I want a 22-wheeler on the 401 to roll over and put me out of my misery. And he said, oh, you're, at the time he used the phrase manic depressive, it's now called bipolar disorder. And he wanted me to see a specialist, a psychiatrist and I said, I'm not seeing anyone, I'll fix this myself. And at the time I had a Testarossa, a Ferrari. Mm -hmm. And he said, Judy, if you run your Testarossa on low test gas, on low grade gas, it's going to ping. And he reached over and he said, you're pinging, you need to see someone. (laughs) And I thought, I'm going to fix this myself. And for a year, I tried very hard and I finally uh, called him and I said, whoever you want me to see, I'm happy to see, I can't fix this. And because the longer I was sober, the more extreme the highs and lows highs were. And, lows. and anyway, the doctor that I went to see diagnosed me and said, how did you build your business without seeking medical help? And I said... You were gifted. I never knew there was anything wrong. Yeah. And in that, in the hypomanic phase, the higher phase, I was hugely creative, very full of energy, able to do eight cities in 10 days and... On the other end of it, I would just think, come on, Judy, you can do the East Coast now. Just mm. pull yourself up and get going. Yeah. And so I never even thought there was anything wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was a lot. And you show how racy you were because you just kept talking and talking. And it was all full of logic, too. I'm an engineer, so I can process that really fast. Mm. It's really great. Now, before I let you go, I know you share about... The whole Mount Sinai, you're fundraising for the chair and you truly live through it. Smell Sinai help you a lot. If there's anyone out there that I would think there's only a 0.01% of the population that can go through what you go through and still live a life and to share their story. But you've probably seen a lot of people around you, whether high network, normal people, whatever, see a sign, right? How can you tell by that sign and how do you help those people that might be their family member listening to this podcast, how do they identify and how do they help them to get into what you got into at age 41 where you hit that rock bottom? Mm-hmm. How do you let them realize that a bit earlier so they don't have, right. not everyone will be so lucky right. that you never hit anyone mm-hmm. or never roll over. Mm-hmm. Right? So how do they identify that and how do you help them? Yeah. So if we're talking about somebody with an addiction or with alcoholism, people are in denial up to a certain point where what we say is until you've lost enough you may not recognize that you have a problem that you are the problem it isn't your boss it isn't your wife it isn't your kids that the problem is you 
and the problem is alcohol or drugs, if that's the particular issue. It doesn't matter what somebody says to you, like a wife or a boss may accuse you of being drunk on the job or being drunk, you know, at home in front of the kids. And if the denial is so great that you think they're the problem, you're going to keep on drinking or drugging. And you keep drinking or drugging until you lose your marriage, lose your job, your children won't speak to you anymore, your friends don't want to go out with you because you're toxic when you're drinking. Mm -hmm. There is an invisible line, which we talk about, that one minute I would be fine, mm -hmm. and the next minute I'm not fine. And alcohol is a mood-altering, mind-altering substance, as are drugs. And so for that individual, there has to be a day of reckoning, and that day may come when their wife throws them out, their boss fires them, where they've been warned, you have to clean up your act, you have to stop drinking, you have to change your behavior, that the individual who has the problem won't change until, again, they've lost enough, they have to look at themselves and say, perhaps That's I'm the smart. problem and I need help. And until you're prepared to say, I need help, and you're prepared to listen, mm -hmm. no one else. Can nobody help. can help you. Wow. Well, there everyone has it, speaking from Judy Wells, that actually been there, done that, recover, was very successful in business, and now definitely spearheading the whole Mount Sinai chair to have a endowment so have they, have a, they can have a researcher full-time to look into more preventive way and how do you guide people correctly instead of just aftermath. Mm -hmm. So again, the next video that will come out, we're going to interview uh, Dr. Buke and this is going to come out right after this video and we'll go hand in hand with this video. But I really want to thank uh, Judy for coming on and sharing your place with us. It's a really nice place. I just don't hear this kind of stories in real life a lot. I think more people need to hear this and more people need to know this, especially after COVID, after all the lockup and all the crazy things happening mm -hmm. around the world. So thanks for sharing. My pleasure. Thank you very much for your time as well today, Cody. Yeah. And if you guys want to learn more about it, there's a description and a link. And if you kind enough, you want to, you can relate, you want to donate again in the link or you want to know more about what this program is about, check out the link. See you guys on the next episode. All the links mentioned in this episode are included in the show notes. And if you love this episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple iTunes. The link is also included in the show notes. And we would really appreciate your help in spreading the word to more high income earners on how they too can maximize both their time and money. Also, if you still haven't joined our high income earners Facebook group, you are missing out on high income earners community where we help each other reach our own version of fire. 